Welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but before I introduce him, a word about a forthcoming, very exciting event. I've got this event, which loads of you have been clamouring for for quite some time, uh, with, I think, one of the dream, one, one of the dream podcast live guests david ike i mean i've been putting putting off doing a show with him for a long long time but it's happening in the north well northish if you count manchester on the 15th of november tickets are selling out fast but i want i want a really good crowd and i i, I think it's going to be really enjoyable i'm going to ask all the questions you wanted to ask david david ike were maybe afraid to ask and 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 I'm not going to get let him get away with stuff, you know. I'm not going to let him be slippery. I want to I want to pin him down on on various things that I'm slightly puzzled about and get the best out of him. Anyway, fifteenth of November in Manchester, I will provide the 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 ticket where you can buy tickets in the in the blurb below this below this um podcast. Right now, on to my invisible if you're watching this on video and hoping for video uh, wondering why it's not there my invisible guest robert (laughs) frederick robert welcome to the delling pod um i'm happy to be here james thank you very happy i'm i'm excited robert but i'm also I, i think it's kind of ironic or maybe it's deliberate that you are the author and creator of the hidden life is best podcast are hiding your identity in yes. a kind of Francis Bacon style. <laughs> yes, the hidden life is best for a while anyway. I'll I'll come out of hiding of the shadows when my book is published. Oh, okay. Okay. Um I there will be some people um listening to this wondering who the hell Robert Frederick is. I discovered you what about two or three weeks ago on the recommendation of some of my some of my um, my followers, and they said you've got to listen to this amazing podcast about Sir Francis Bacon. And despite being an American, <laughs> you seem to know an awful lot about Francis Bacon. Indeed, you make claims on your fascinating series of podcasts i haven't listened to them all by the way but i've I've listened to two or three and i think they're they're amazing and i highly recommend them you make the claim that what he was just about the most influential man who ever lived yes i think he was the most influential man that ever lived i think that can be figured out i also say he's the smartest man who ever lived but you can't you can't really say that that's that's what what do you call that rhetorical device? But the most influential man well, who can. ever lived. <laughs> you can say it. You can't prove it. But I think you could make a very strong case that he was the most influential man that ever lived. And I say the line between ancient and modern runs right through Francis Bacon's life. Before it, it, you um, give me the hard sell on okay. why you think okay. Bacon. Um, measures up to these these extraordinary claims you've made for him. And by the way, we should stress he's no relation, or not to be confused with, <laughs> the painter Francis Bacon, right, right, who came a bit later. <laughs> yeah, it happened. We're talking about the. Uh, are you familiar with the other guy with, with oh, Francis course. Bacon, yeah, the I painter? St- I studied art in college. Did you? Yeah, 
He was big. He was big when we when I, I was, was going to school. ask you. Was yeah, well I suppose that these these so that there are artists aren't there who are designated as the artists that you rate as the greatest of their age. And whether they are or not is I think um irrelevant to the debate. It's it's the ones that the system imposes on you. I agree. Completely agree. And interestingly uh, enough, Francis Bacon's been forgotten. Largely. Yeah. You mean you mean Bacon number one? Oh yeah, sir. You have to. I'll say, sir, Sir Francis Bacon has been uh, has been largely forgotten. Yeah, yeah. So that's a he clue. has. Yeah, you, I, and you're going to tell me that's probably by design. But before we before we learn more about Francis Bacon, I just wanted to quit. I you're reluctant to re- reveal your 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 physog. Yes. Um, I'd like to know how an American has become to be so involved in in uh, a, a, a renaissance, well, a, re, a renaissance renaissance man <laughs> in England. Uh, good one. I, you know, it's it's something that I've just always been very curious and a big reader and started in with the history and also very curious about why the world is so messed up when as yeah. a traveler and someone who's done different occupations and I'm a people person I meet a lot of people and it's I think the overwhelming number of people I meet are decent and reasonably intelligent and want a fair shake for the other guy and I, I just couldn't make sense of why there's so much trouble in the world and I started to hone in on the English Empire uh, as part Irish heritage and an American, you know, that's probably not an unusual way to think. But I thought that the arc of history for the last few hundred years is undeniably the story of the English Empire. And then I started thinking, well, how that's kind of hidden because now the Americans are the big baddies, you know, since really the end of World War II. As I say on my podcast, the English kind of disappeared behind the mushroom cloud that the Americans created, and now it's the big bad Americans. But I kept thinking, you know, everywhere you go, there's problems in the world. Oh, the English were there. You know, simple search, you find out the English invaded 180 countries with their army, army and navy, which just staggered yeah, me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so fact after fact just kept coming my way. I was like, yeah, I think... I think I'm on to something, but it was all just kind of random reading, listening to stuff. And that was just one idea I had, a head full of ideas that are driving me insane, to quote the poet. When one day I'm listening to a podcast uh, called Susquehanna, Susquehanna River Alchemy. And it was all about the Susquehanna River, which is a fairly major river on the east coast of the United States that empties into the Chesapeake Bay, which is where D.C. is and Jamestown. And so it was all about the Susquehanna River in this kind of occult way, but it started mentioning Jamestown. And Jamestown is the first successful English settlement in the United States, called Jamestown for King James, started in 1607. And in passing... He mentions that Francis Bacon sat on the the board of the Jamestown Colony Corporation. 
And I was like, God, I keep running across this name, Francis Bacon. I can't believe he was on the board of Jamestown Colony Corporation. It really struck me. And I started writing an email to a friend because we had gone to college on the Susquehanna River. And the Susquehanna River supposedly means all these other things. But I was really struck, and he's a history guy. And anyway, I won't go into it. It's still too complicated. But there was this tremendous synchronicity happened right then, which I explained in one of the episodes of the podcast. And it had to do with Francis Bacon. I thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to look into Francis Bacon. And lo and behold, you find out he's the primary suspect for being William Shakespeare, which is fascinating, which I was already, I think that's probably how I discovered Francis Bacon, because another podcast, uh, Alan Green, talked about how Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, which absolutely fascinated me. And that got me into, I think, Francis Bacon. Then discovering he was on the Jamestown Colony Corporation, so Shakespeare was into colonization. He's also considered the father of science. So the Shakespeare thing is tenuous in conspiracy theory, but father of modern science is not. That's accepted. And when you look at the Age of Enlightenment, it almost always says, oh, it began with Francis Bacon and his, his ideas on inductive reasoning. So Francis Bacon invented a new way of thinking. There was deductive reasoning from the Greeks. Francis Bacon made a strong case for inductive reasoning. He said, we need to use this for the new science. And it was a huge influence, these books he wrote, uh, philosophical works he wrote about science. So it's, it's pretty much indisputed that he started the ball rolling for this whole idea of modern science, because we've always had science, of course. And that's all basically indisputable. Now, on top of that, he was considered one of the greatest lawyers of all time, which there's not a lot of information on that. I haven't had time to go into that, but he did become eventually Attorney General of England. So the guy who started modern science was also Attorney General of, of England. He became Lord Chancellor of England. And he was even at one point regent, which meant he was acting king of England when James and uh, the Duke of Buckingham went back to Scotland for a wee visit. So he actually made it to king. And here's where it gets kind of crazy. And I pride myself I'm not getting too crazy with the conspiracy theories. But I am very much a believer that Francis Bacon was Queen Elizabeth's secret son. Which, now I hope I haven't lost half of your listeners. Sounds really crazy. But there's just a huge uh, amount. Robert, yeah. you've got to go a lot crazier before you start alienating <laughs> my listeners, I can okay. tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're safe here, my friend. <laughs> That's wonderful. So it's just a crazy, crazy story. And the more I read, I was like, I don't believe this. I just don't believe what I'm finding out. He's associated with the beginning of free, modern Freemasonry, for God's sake. And I thought, okay, if I start a podcast about all this stuff that's completely blown my mind, that's a good way for me to go forward while studying it. And, you know, kind of having some fun and, and consolidating this overwhelming amount of information that's very difficult to keep track of because I'm studying the history of the English Empire, the history of modern science, 
the Tudors. Shakespeare. Shakespeare alone is like nearly infinite. It just gets crazy when you get into Shakespeare. It's a whole nother world. And I kind of pride myself on coming into it with fresh eyes because we actually didn't study Shakespeare in school. My, my kids have all gotten Shakespeare now, but I think briefly there was a moment where we didn't get any Shakespeare here on the East Coast, anyway, the States. Every school, every school is different. It's run by the States here. Uh, Shakespeare's definitely still taught, but I didn't know much about Shakespeare, and I always wanted to. I always wanted to know what people were talking about when they said Iago or Falstaff or these very common Shakespearean uh, names and tropes. So that was fun, getting getting to know Shakespeare, brushing up my Shakespeare, and I couldn't believe, you know, what I was finding there. So it's just this huge amount of of information that uh, I I saw was Gnostic, like Gnosticism has kind of been resurgent as a as a field of study, and I got turned onto that by one of these books that showed that the Gnostics really were the secret elite of the world, or at least gave me that idea. So all this uh, tremendous amount of information came together all at once for me. So I'm really swimming in it, trying to keep my head above water, trying to make sense of it trying to present it in an entertaining way and uh, a book is the goal which i'm i'm well on my way to writing a book about it so you am i right in thinking you majored in what fine art yes and american university courses are different from ours you uh, they're, yeah. they're much less specialized aren't they so, yes. so what were your sort of subsidiary subjects Kind of everything. I've always loved music, um, cinema, literature, poetry, um, mysticism, very attracted to mysticism. Physics was really big back then, the Tao of physics, the dancing wooly masters. You know, pretty much everything. I've always had a very wide range of interests, and I'm, I'm a songwriter. I once wrote a song called I Wanna Know Everything. And I, I kind of felt that way. And then the internet burst forth, and suddenly I had, you know, libraries at my fingertips. You know, it was a blessing and a curse. Yeah. And I feel I, like I, I was going to ask my, you about Go that. ahead. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, first of all, I was going to say, you, you, you clearly have the, the, yourself the Renaissance man skills to be able yeah. to examine this from all angles, um, yeah. you know, music, philosophy, etc., literature, yeah. etc. Um, but secondly, I was going to ask you how, because as you know, the, the Tudors um, yeah. is just about the most well-covered area of English history there is. There are people who've, who've, who've built, built in entire careers on on their expertise on, on the Tudors. I mean, yeah. an historian called David Starkey, there are various kind of women who write sort of books about Elizabeth and about the, her, 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 her dad, Henry VIII, and his wives and stuff. And we think we know so much about the Elizabethan court, but I suspect that none of this stuff is going to be none of your theories are going to be um, countenanced in mainstream published books. So where did you go for your information? That's a good question. Um, 
People have been writing about Francis Bacon as the real Shakespeare for about 180 years. And many of them are English, and many of them have a detailed knowledge of Elizabeth, uh, I guess Henry VIII, but it's more Elizabeth. It's all happened during Elizabeth. And they write about it, and they give details, and they give clues. And there is a lot of stuff that is straightforward history that just doesn't make a lot of the history books. There's a lot of clues that Bacon was Shakespeare going back 400 years. And people have started to put it together. You can even take a course at uh, University of London online by Coursera called uh, Shakespeare Authorship Issue, which is, which is shocking because you couldn't even talk about it, especially in England, 20, 25 years ago. You would just get mocked. And here even as well, it was, it was career suicide for an academic to discuss this issue. But that's really the entree to this story is the Shakespeare authorship controversy. And it's really heated up in the last 20 years, probably because of the internet. But it's been a major source of contention for easily 100 years. Mark Twain wrote his last book about it called Is Shakespeare Dead? Hundreds, literally yeah, thousands I, I, I of spent, books. I spent three years um, reading English literature at, at uh, university at Oxford. And wow. we spent a year pretty On much Shakespeare. studying Shakespeare. Yeah. And never once on the course was Shakespearean authorship countenanced as a matter for for debate. I mean it just wasn't just wasn't there at all. It wasn't considered a, a thing. And and to be fair, uh, we were studying literature at the time. We weren't studying yeah. history or or authorship and it didn't really matter we were analyzing the texts as as texts and and even then i mean even more so now there's this 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 approach in english literature now which almost um pretends that no work of literature had an author you're just you're just examining the text and and i'm not sure that that's that's very healthy but even yeah. when i was there um yeah. it was it was the case that you weren't really interested in whether or not it was bacon or or um de Vere or or whoever um yeah i i have to confess robert that i have a dog in this fight mm -hmm. um because i have a very good friend called alexander war who has who makes a very i don't want to i don't want to argue too much about it with you because i mean this is this is your baby and i and i and it, I, I kind of want it to be your show to talk about what you want to talk about but um i find Alexander War's case that it was De Vere, the Earl of Oxford, who wrote Shakespeare, pretty pretty convincing. Um, because it's not just about sort of circumstantial evidence. It's 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 right. ultimately about. I, I I commend his his um his YouTube channel on on this subject. It's to do with clues provided by by John Dee in the form of codes. Um, of, of right. gematria and numerology and and right. geometry and stuff, uh, 
on things like the first edition of the of the sonnets and stuff yes. which i i i think that um indicate that probably it was devere but look i i i don't think that the excitingness of your case depends you know, stands or falls on on purely on on bacon having written or not written written shakespeare i mean he he's he's the most extraordinary character um and that really comes comes yeah. across in your, oh, your podcast i'm T- so glad tell me tell me first of all um why you think that he was the the secret son of of glory oh, you want to start there Elizabeth, okay the, the virgin queen <laughs> okay sure um I heard your last podcast with Alexander Waugh, and I'm, I'm very familiar oh, with his work because he's all over YouTube. So I have so much to say about Devere and Bacon and Oxfordians and Baconians and Stratfordians because that's, that's really, it is kind of the meat of the matter here. It's, it's kind of the nexus of the story. But the, the idea that Bacon was the secret son of Queen Elizabeth apparently was discussed was was out during that time but it was quickly quashed as you know the tudor era was a police state it was a very brutal regime and they had no qualms about cutting off tongues and cutting off ears i've even heard of cutting off noses like you just didn't spread rumors if they weren't meant to be spread and also people most people couldn't write so if there were any secrets they weren't they weren't going to get written down and hidden away but i can't i don't have that information at my fingertips but there were there was scuttlebutt at the time Uh, there's a whole area of research into this uh which i don't actually i didn't prepare for that but i can tell you this francis bacon was born right next door to whitehall in a place called york house and Whitehall had a part of Whitehall was called York Place. And the first biography, English biography of Francis Bacon was by his, his chaplain, Dr. William Raleigh. And Raleigh begins his biography of Bacon saying, uh, Francis was born either in York House or York Place. And York Place was where Nicholas Bacon lived and Anne Cook Bacon. And it's and she was uh, a lady in waiting. She was head, apparently, of the lady in waitings for Queen Mary, Mary I. And so it's very easy to imagine that Elizabeth gave birth and Nicholas and, and Anne raised the baby. And there's all kinds of clues to that. Francis Bacon was never given an inheritance. Nicholas was one of the richest people in England. He had five sons. All the other four got an inheritance. Francis was left high and dry. The birth records uh, show that there was kind of scribbled in later something about... They, they, they made a mark indicating that something was odd about the birth. And Bacon has a letter saying, I don't intend to, to treat Francis as a ward. I'm going to raise him as my own son. You know, why would she say that? And there's a lot of other very circumstantial evidence. I don't have it at my fingertips. It would be easy for me to get it, but I'm I'm not ready. That he well, was, no, that's interesting. I, I yeah, all of that is 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 there, and there's a lot more. Oh, there's the whole thing about 
his putative father, real father, Robert Dudley, was locked up in the Tower of London with Queen Elizabeth by uh, Mary One. Can I call her Bloody Mary? Is that is that rude to say Bloody Mary? Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, <laughs> they were actually in the Tower Although, of London. Although, by the way, uh huh. Just briefly, yeah. Um, Bloody Mary is, of course, her name is 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 the is the product. Her nickname is the product of protestant myth isn't it i mean it's 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 the myth of the victors we uh-huh. we know i think that elizabeth in the elizabeth era um many people were burned at the stake for their absolutely their absolutely. religious beliefs you're right that's tudor propaganda but mary's which, been sold to us yeah can yeah. i quickly put in have you seen uh, the lost king by stephen coogan no tell me uh, oh you have to see this movie because it the sub Plot, the subtext of the movie is Tudor propaganda using Shakespeare. So the Tudors were masters of propaganda. And yeah, that's great. Bloody Mary. We say Bloody Mary, but when we think of Elizabeth, we think of you know, fine fabrics yeah, and nice quite. music. And yeah, because they're masters of propaganda. The Lost King, fantastic movie based on a true story of a woman who discovered the remains of Richard III who was the last king before the Tudor dynasty. And they made Richard III look evil, and that Shakespeare play makes Richard III look totally evil. And it turns out none of that is true at all. He was a decent chap. That yeah. Henry VII, you know, took yeah. the crown, and they threw him in the ground, and no one knew where he was buried. And Great movie, The, the Lost King. But okay. anyway, we were on... Oh, so uh, Dudley, who became Essex. Earl of Leicester... Essex is another story. Oh, so D- D- Dudley sorry, sorry, yes. was Earl of Leicester. Dudley. Robert Dudley was the son of Northampton. Northampton led a rebellion uh, against Mary. He was killed. Dudley was thrown in the tower, and she threw Elizabeth in the tower... Uh, on suspicion of wanting to take power, which was very common, as you know, in those days. You're under suspicion of a rebellion. You go in the tower. She event- and, and they knew each other from childhood. This is all straight-up history, acknowledged history of the Tudors. You could find it anywhere. Dudley and, and Elizabeth knew each other as children. Then they're locked up in the tower. Rumors are they started an affair. Uh, they both thought they were going to die. You know, let's uh, let's live all we can while we can. They had an affair. And that, of course, is not standard history. But standard history is that when Elizabeth became queen shortly thereafter, she immediately made Robert Dudley master of the horse, gave him an apartment right next door to her bedroom. And standard Tudor history is she became, he became her favorite. And they had a a huge affair, like undeniable affair. And then, mysteriously, Amy Robsart, uh, Dudley's wife, died, I think in Ireland. Did he have an estate in Ireland? She fell down the stairs and broke her neck. Just before, yeah. And then there is some indication they were secretly married at uh, 
at the Pembroke Mansion. Pembroke is a huge name in all of this, in the Shakespeare thing and Tudor history. They were secretly married, and there's a lot of stuff, uh, evidence for that, that they were secretly married and that she gave birth so that Bacon was born to a married couple. He was born, you know, not conceived while they were married, but he was born married. That was very important. Given to uh, Nicholas Bacon and Anne Cook Bacon and raised that way, but that some of that evidence I could dig up. I don't. I don't have it at my fingerprints right now. So yeah, and didn't you say that that, that really strong when when um, when Bacon went abroad, Elizabeth mm-hmm. t- um, turned yeah. out to, to yeah, see so, him off or something. Like so that. going forward, there's tons of evidence that that Elizabeth was unusually interested in young Francis. Yeah. And that's a whole, whew, that's going to be a whole chapter in the book, I guess. There's just so much about it. But one of the main ones is she accompanied him to the docks and and left, uh, he left with her hand. He left by her hand, which just never happened, especially for 15-year-olds. Maybe it would happen. Yeah. A major person was leaving, but no, Elizabeth didn't go down to the docks very often. And he wrote about that twice, and so that was that was well known. And there are other instances where, for instance, she had Nicholas build a house in St. Albans. It's called Gorhambury, and she told him to build a house. And it turns out that it was near one of her summer residences. And it is known that she would go on progress to Gorhambury and, and took an, an interest in Bacon. And a lot of this is mainstream Tudor scholarship. It's not going to be in a standard history book of Elizabeth because there's so much to write about. But when you want to dig into the yeah. Francis Bacon story, yeah, it's in all the books about Francis Bacon. The, the, well, the, I, think, I think all this background is really interesting. And uh, yeah. given that his... His prodigious intellect. Now we oh, know incredible. that Nicholas. You mentioned that Nicholas Bacon was was super bright, but of course, so was Elizabeth. She was very very oh, well, very read very bright, and educated. Not only that, but Anne Cook's Bacon. Anne Cook Bacon's father was known as the leading educator in all of England. He had been Edward's tutor, and it's also believed that. Elizabeth had a special book written. That's separate, but also uh, Anne Bacon spoke Latin and Greek. She was very, very highly educated for a woman of that time. So it was a very rich environment. I can't imagine a richer environment to grow up up in for learning. Yeah, no, and I was it, just talking yeah. about about the. the, the I yeah. mean, I, I agree. The environmental input must have must have played Incredible. a you know, major. But a difference, but but also, but just genetically. So you've got genetically too. If 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 Elizabeth was his mother, so yeah. you've got Elizabeth is very bright. I don't know. Was I don't think Robert Dudley was known as a, an intellect, was he, or was he? Well, he certainly had a lot of energy and enthusiasm. But no, I don't think he was known as an intellect. But so he, he probably got his mother's intellect because because I mean Bacon was prodigiously intelligent, wasn't he? As well as being yes. very very. Oh. Well read. Tell us Freakishly. about his, his how clever he was. Freakishly intelligent. Well, I think, based on my reading and some of the biographies, that he he was so smart that they decided to kind of keep it hidden. He became like a secret weapon. 
But it's uh, it's it's I've read this that he could he knew Latin and Greek by the age of seven. You know, he spoke fluently Latin, ancient Greek, Italian, Spanish, probably German, and you know German Dutch was kind of important and Hebrew. It is rumored that he read every book in print. I think it's quite possible he had an an extraordinary intelligence that could like consume books effortlessly. They said he read every book in print at the time. He read all the ancient Greeks, all of it, all the Latins, all the Romans, all of Aristotle, all of Plato. There weren't a lot of books then. There were a lot of books, but nothing like today. Like you could... Could you imagine anyone saying, I read all of Aristotle and all of Plato and all of Horace and all of Ovid and all of Cicero? Like, nobody does that anymore. You just don't have the time. But the knowledge in, inside those works is, is incredible. And he absorbed it all. And they saw this in him. They actually devised a, a, a method of learning from a man named, I think, Sir... Sir Asham, Roger Asham, Richard Asham, who was a known educator. And Elizabeth, uh, it's rumored she asked him to write a book on how to educate a young courtier. And they, they just, Francis wanted information and they gave it to him. And he, he flowered such that he dropped out of college at the age of 15, dropped out of university, announcing he was bored. And he actually, at the age of 15, took on Plato and Aristotle as not progressive enough. And actually wrote a book called The Refutation of All Philosophies. Like, at the age of 15, he declared that he was going to create a whole new thing. And then the rumors get really crazy. You can read uh, various writers that ascribe Big books to Bacon, books that were published anonymously, books that were one-off, someone just wrote one book. Big books, like Robert Burton's uh, Anatomy of Melancholy. There are people that will say Francis Bacon wrote that. There are people that will say Francis Bacon was actually Edmund Spencer. So this stuff gets kind of crazy, but if you look at it, if you look at it with an open mind, you can be led to think that I guess it's possible. Mozart was writing symphonies at the age of seven. Whole symphonies. Doesn't seem possible, but I do think that Bacon was a Mozart of words and that he could dash off a book like, like Mozart could dash off a symphony and he could consume things. And it's, it's rumored, it's spoken of, you can find these quotes, that he had an extraordinary memory. And there you go. It's, and then it did. I mean, what he accomplished just in his life alone is is remarkable with the with his legal work and his philosophical work are just enormous accomplishments but he is so implicated in shakespeare which maybe you don't want to get into i know robert i was thinking this i was as you told me i i hadn't realized that you'd listened to my alexander war podcast and you were aware of this and it would be terribly unfair of of me not to give you a, a, a crack of the whip so tell me Tell me why you think um, that that Bacon. I'm. I 
I think we've established pretty thoroughly that the man from Stratford did not no. write the works attributed to William Shakespeare. That's, I, mean, I don't that, think that's, we need that's, to that's waste an easy any one. time on that. <laughs> we don't. We really don't. Um, I mean, I'm sorry for those people who, who still imagine that this is a... <laughs> this question a hasn't been decided, but, but yeah. I'm afraid it has. Yeah. Uh, but, but tell us, give us... Um, Okay. Because I, I I do want to move on to I I find the Gnostic stuff and the Freemason oh, stuff yeah. even more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 your theory, which I think is very persuasive, that this influenced the rural society, which in turn into, yeah. uh, influenced scientism. That's really good. Yeah. But please tell me, yeah. um, Bacon and Shakespeare, why you think he's yeah. the he he is the the more likely candidate? Well, there are two camps now. It's kind of dissolved the Oxfordians and the Baconians, and there's some competition between the two. And I am a groupist. I think it was a group of people. And where I get original, I think, is I think Shakespeare was a project of British intelligence and that Francis Bacon was more or less head of intelligence. He was sent at the age of 15 off to France with Sir Amias Paulette, who was in intelligence his whole life. He was close to Francis Walsingham. He was close to Cecil, Lord Burley. These these were the heavyweight intelligencers, which was the word for spy in those days, an intelligencer. And I think this was conscious, and I think De Vere was definitely involved in this project. But what I don't get about people like Waugh and other Oxfordians is that they want De Vere to be the sole guy that wrote all the plays with his scriptorium, that he was the man and he was this misunderstood genius. They, they really like this kind of mythology of the misunderstood outcast genius that pushed out all these plays. And I think there are some uncanny associations with his life. I refuse to get into this code stuff because Bacon, Baconians have been doing that for a hundred years. And to me, it just starts to look silly. You can you can make anything out of anything. You, if you don't have the cipher, if you don't have the what they were using to make the codes, you can never be entirely sure. And Waugh's really into 17, and people make Bacon out to be 17, and 33, and Numbers, and Gematria. Here's the deal, which I don't understand, uh, because there's, a, there's smoking gun evidence for Bacon as Shakespeare. On multiple levels, the evidence is like a tsunami. It just overwhelms De Vere. And I'll, I'll start here. I'll start with what I think is the big smoking gun, and that is the Promise Notebook. There happens to be a book found in 1880 by Constance, Constance Pott, who was the first British Baconian. She was the first... Britisher to challenge the Shakespeare, the Stratfordian theory. The first ever was Delia Bacon. Interesting. One of those crazy coincidences you start to find. An American woman. I think Constance Pott got it from Delia Bacon. Anyway, Constance Pott found a book in the British Library, I believe, called The Promise Notebook. It's in Francis Bacon's hand. It's promise means storehouse in Latin. And it's a book with, with jottings down of ideas, things like proverbs, sayings, thoughts, 
ideas, translations, things a writer might keep to keep his ideas straight. You might have such a notebook. I understand you're a writer. Uh, it's very yeah, common I don't. for I'm, you don't I'm keep not a notebook. meticulous or methodical enough. <laughs> so the otherwise, I would no- have such a thing. Yes, <laughs> the Promise Notebook has. Uh, so Constance Pot thought there's 2,000 entries. Constance Pot thought there were 1,400 direct parallels in Shakespeare. The best book ever written on this is the Bacon Shakespeare Question by N. B. Coburn. He whittled that down to 700. Some of them are directly in Shakespeare. They're in the Promise Notebook, and the exact saying is in Shakespeare. Dozens and dozens of them. Things like, to slay with a leaden sword, and love's labor's lost. Wounds like a leaden sword, love's labor's lost. Things done cannot be undone. Macbeth, what's done cannot be undone. Uh, Many men stumble at the threshold. To stumble at the threshold, promise notebook. A fool's bolt is soon shot, promise notebook. Henry V, Act 4, Scene 7. A fool's bolt is soon shot. So dozens of exact comparisons and hundreds of close comparisons in one notebook, the Promus notebook. You know, Waugh doesn't mention it. This amazing woman, this amazing book just came out by Elizabeth Winkler, which is one reason this is heating up, called Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Oh, she, yeah. Or, yeah, it's great. It's a great book. And she's going to be at the Shakespeare Authorship Trust meeting on October 15th, somewhere in London. I was hoping to go, but I won't be able to. She doesn't mention the Promus I notebook. wish she would. It's so weird. I mean, to me, it's a smoking gun, but, you know, I'm just getting started. I, you know, I could read dozens of those. It gets boring. But there's this other thing called the Northumberland Manuscript found at the Northumberland Mansion uh, fairly recently. I forget the date. And in it is a folder containing other papers. And on the front of that folder is written the name William Shakespeare in different types of spelling. It also is written Francis Bacon in different types of spelling. It's even written Francis William Shakespeare. And it was thought to be just another folder of Francis Bacon's writings, because he also had a scriptorium, what he called his good pens, of people just writing for him or translating things or probably neatly writing out his scribbles for the printer. And uh, let me see if I can find the... So this was their way of organizing his writings. And in that folder, this Northumberland manuscript, were, were three Shakespeare plays, a Thomas Nash play, Lester's Commonwealth, and a few other things that were missing, but some other stuff that was still there. But it's the first time... William Shakespeare's name was ever seen in manuscript, and it's right next to Francis Bacon's name. And it's just this amazing clue that they were connected as early. They date this uh, manuscript to 1594, which is some of the earliest plays were performed in 1594. How about this one? Uh, A Comedy of Errors was known to first have been performed in 1594 at Gray's Inn, where Francis Bacon was head of the revels. So he dropped out of 
college. He did eventually go to law school, and he stayed connected with that law school his entire life, Gray's Inn. Might have been the same one Devere was at. And they had revels every Christmas season, and Francis Bacon was master of the revels that season, and it's known that Comedy of Errors was put on right then and there, and also Love's Labor's Lost was supposed to be put on then. Now, Love's Labor's Lost concerns the court of Henry at Navarre, where Bacon went when they sent him overseas at the age of 15. He stayed involved with the court. He got intimately involved with the French court. And the play is about four young scholars who try not to hang out with women for the next few years. They're going to discipline themselves and study, study, study. And it's a, it's a comedy. And in that comedy, there's four, uh, four young scholars that have the names of four people that were in Anthony Bacon's passport. Barrowin, Braun, let's see. Anyway, there's this, oh, the names in Anthony Bacon's passport. Uh, Dumaine, Longueville, Barone, and Boyette. They're the exact same names of the characters in Love's Labor's Lost. Again, one of the very first ever Shakespeare plays. They know when it was performed overwhelming direct connection to Francis Bacon. Uh, there's a lot more, but then just speaking generally, Francis Bacon was extraordinarily disciplined. He was extraordinarily connected. He was extraordinarily well-read. He was known to be devious. He was known to be hidden. And he was capable of running this project. Like It didn't happen with two or three or five guys secretly writing plays and, and handing them off. This had to be a big operation. It had to have gone to the very top. It had to involve major figures. Nothing really got past the Tudors. They were, you know, we think we're being surveilled today. They were being surveilled then. Everyone was a spy. Every tavern owner, every time you went abroad, you were a spy. Everyone knew everything. And so you're actually more protected the more you have involved in a project. You're more protected because no one's going to betray the project because they'll be betraying so many people. So when trying to work out how they pulled this off, I think Bacon was the mastermind. And his dates fit perfectly with Shakespeare. When the plays were written, when they were performed, when they stopped being written, and the famous first folio, which created the Shakespeare myth, was printed in 1623, three years before Francis Bacon died. It's known Ben Johnson was living with Francis Bacon at that exact time when the first folio came out. You know, Devere had been dead for, what is it, almost 20 years. And the Devereans, just one... It, Deverians, the Oxfordians, this is just one case. They have to twist themselves into pretzels to say, well, it was, it was Oxford's friends that printed it, and they found the plays, and they saved the plays, and they printed the plays. Where with Bacon, it's like he was living with Ben Johnson. He had a scriptorium. They put the whole thing together and put it out, and Bacon you know, left three years later. Bacon died three years later. So all the dates fit perfectly with Bacon. But... 
Devere was involved. I'm sure they used Devere. I think Devere wrote some of the sonnets because Devere was like kind of crazy, right? He was passionate. He spent millions of dollars on clothes and women and horses and finery. Is that really a kind of guy that could write 36 plays with deep psychological characterizations of so many different people? Like really like tough psychological, tough, you know, mental work to write those plays. But I could see him writing sonnets that are full of, like, anger and passion and retribution, <laughs> regret, and longing. He seems like that kind of guy. So I think he did help with the writing. And I know he wrote plays on his own, and I know he was brilliant. But to think that he organized this whole project... I just don't get how Oxfordians can say that. Like, what? I think they should just say, yeah, he was involved. Well, I'm very glad, Robert, that I gave you the chance to make your case because I, I, I and, and I, as I found listening to your podcast, I find you, you are very persuasive. And y- y- I mean, yeah, I, I'm uh, open to your, your ideas. I just, if I were into threesomes, I would, <laughs> I would get you and Alexander to do a podcast together and I'd, I, I, I'd, I'd be the moderator and get you to duke it out. The problem is that I hate being a moderator. Yeah, I don't, don't want to argue. They just don't work. Yeah. yeah. But I do, think, I do think at some stage you need to get on a stage with Alexander to do yeah. it. I mean, you, you ought to be doing that at a festival. It's, it, it's not fair for me really to kind of... I, I, I haven't got enough information at my, my disposal to be able to adjudicate. And I think it would be much better just if you at least got on a platform and got your arguments out there. Um, well, and, uh, he you know, is starting might... to say Bacon was probably involved. Like Alexander Waugh has gone from Oxford did it all with a couple friends to, I think it was a group. And yeah, yeah, Bacon. Bacon was probably involved. But the fact of the matter is Bacon was... The big dog big in dog. London uh, that whole time. Robert. So anyway, yeah, let's 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 move on. I can tell. The, oh, but chap uh, episode. Uh, well, 10 yeah, of I'm not moving podcast. on because because I I'm not moving you on because I want to pour scorn on your on right. your. No, I understand. You want um, to get to Shakespeare the Gnostics. Was, yeah. Well, I want to get to the Gnostics because I think it's really really interesting. And after all, this was the reason why you got into this stuff. You yes. asked the question. That a lot, a lot of people listening to this podcast will have asked themselves, which yeah. is, why is the world so completely <laughs> effed up? Yeah. Uh, how did we get here? How come? Yeah. How come we live in this world that I was taught to believe that was on my side? I now realise is a godless place run by people who hate me, who yeah. want to either kill me or enslave me or poison yeah. me or or treat me as as their chattels or as their as yeah. their cattle and you i think um have a powerful theory to suggest that at least in its modern form this goes back to the kind of the spy state and and the mystical control system yeah created by francis bacon yeah yeah, I I definitely believe that. And to make a case for it, um, you know, it's frankly it's not that hard. 
And then we've seen, you know, the English Empire take over the whole world. How would I start? Well, it's very though? interesting, isn't it? That, that How would I, I think that in? I was just going to say to you that that um, I think most people who are down the rabbit hole are painfully aware of the degree to which the intelligence services yeah. run the world in the interests yeah. of these of of what I call the, the roots, predator yeah. class, who might yeah. call the, the cabal or whatever. Yeah, and you, we've been talking a lot in this podcast thus far about the spy state. Yes. So I think it's not it, it's not a leap to infer from that that these traditions continued from the, 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 this this was uh, created in Elizabethan times. This the spy state, and we're still living in the spy state now. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like what the Elizabethans had in terms of spying. It's just incredible, and it's tied in you know, deeply with the occult, which is what Gnosticism is. Gnosticism is the occult, and all of modern occultism is, is Gnostic. And so, there's John Dee, and yeah. there's the Rosicrucians, and there's the Freemasons. And there's occult knowledge, which was really circulating in Europe, uh, the Occult in Elizabethan England by Francis Yates details it, but kind of in a positive way, and that it kind of loosed that this occult, these occult writings loosened up the Catholic Church and loosened people up and opened up people and allowed um, humanism to develop and the Renaissance to develop, which was followed by the Enlightenment. Hey, Robert, just, just pause you there. Yeah, isn't that really interesting? You see, this this strikes me as as the propaganda in excelsis of yeah. that period. What yeah. what do we learn when we? Why do we study the Renaissance? Why do we study yeah. the Enlightenment? Yeah, we are taught that this was a period in which man overcame the 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 superstition and entrenched power <laughs> of yeah. the church and yeah. formed a new and much more beneficial understanding of the world. Yeah, and you'll get authors like that guy that you. What, what was his name about the occult? Uh, Francis Yates. Francis. I wonder if Yates is a Freemason. Um, no relation. He, uh, it's he, a woman actually, and she. But she worked for one of the biggest banks. Oh well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I, I yeah. Mean, she was writing I, I, for I was, them. Yeah. But do, do, don't you think that that this line we are fed about humanism, about about. The very that very word enlightenment, as though pre yeah. previously the, the, the Abelard and Heloise and, and and all the kind of medieval the the the, the medieval yeah. scholars who brought us such wisdom um, that, that somehow they can be dispensed with because hey yeah. there are some new guys in town and they've really yeah. got it and they've kind of yeah. they're questioning God and they're examining the occult. Did, yeah. When, when you were talking when, when you're talking about the, the occult, is the the occult study and practices that, that, that people like Bacon were into, uh -huh. is that essentially the Babylonian mystery religions? Pretty much, yes. So D was the real occult wizard. They were close, D and Bacon. There's not a lot of uh, evidence. They spent a lot of time together, but Bacon was the book guy. D was the book guy. Um, and... 
the the Rosicrucians were very much influenced by D, and Bacon did the Rosicrucians. But yes, it goes back to the Babylonian mystery religions because the Gnostics, the original Gnostics, came up around the time of the birth of Christ, the birth and death of Jesus Christ. It was when Gnosticism really began. There's hints of it earlier, but there's always hints of everything earlier. Nothing ever just starts. So Gnosticism is very much associated with the era of Jesus, Roman Empire. And the Gnostics had a completely different idea of nature and creation than the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews. And they thought that the this God, the God, the God of creation was an evil God and that they were trapping our souls here on the planet. And that was their one original idea. Otherwise, they took every religious idea from everywhere. And if you want to study a comparative religion, Gnosticism is a great place to start because they kind of pulled every belief system in. And a lot of it was the mystery religions. And I think at one point, and this is a very interesting way to look at things, the mystery religions were at one time probably positive and probably produced democracy in Greece and philosophy and all that great stuff of ancient Greece, which you say, like, yeah, let's just forget about Socrates, whose one thing was like, what is virtue? What is a good life? And I've heard that he was not initiated, but other friends of mine say he was. It gets very hard to know exactly what was happening in the sacred mysteries because they were so good at keeping it a secret. The final event that so supposedly transformed you and made you a better person and, and gave you wisdom and, and, and a joy of living, really. We don't know what it was. It definitely involved drugs. I'm thinking involved fear. I think it involved a tremendous amount of fear and then a release from that fear. It was sort of sort of near death experience. I think it was trying to re Yeah. A fear death experience, like a near death experience, which is I take my metaphysics now from near death experiences, which were common. Plato wrote the first near death experience. It ends the Republic. It's called the myth of Ur. It's a fantastic story. It's the first ever near-death experience. And and Plato eventually, you know, led to Christianity and Socrates. And early Christianity took so much from Plato that the mysteries weren't necessarily bad. I think they got corrupted by the Gnostics, that they slowly got corrupted. That's interesting. They, yeah, they slowly became about mind control and pulling you into you, the you haven't mentioned the the, the, the word the, the 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 demiurge um i, I know that's yeah. what you're referring to oh uh, that's demiurge. the creator yeah the creator would be the demiurge yeah so 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 because i'm i'm just i'm just coming uh, just learning about gnosticism partly partly from your excellent podcast oh, um thank you. that the 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 god of the of, of the old testament and you know uh yahweh jehovah jar wobble whatever <laughs> Um, <laughs> as you refer to him, um, is in the eyes of the of the Gnostics a he's not the real god. That's the demiurge, and behind yeah. behind the demiurge, beyond the demiurge, is a creator. But yes. the demiurge is in charge of this of this world, yeah, exactly. and it's kind of a hell. 
and to, in order to progress to the true god the god of light which seems to be kind of luciferianism yeah. in there somewhere yeah. yeah is that right am i am i getting uh, yeah. the details wrong here uh that's the broad strokes yes the the gnostics have this extraordinarily complicated creation myth like just to get to that demiurge that made this world is really complicated and and wackadoodle i don't mind saying it involves the creation of sophia and sophia gets jealous and she wants to make her world and then she makes this yaldabaoth or an akamoth and he then makes this world trap sparks of light and sophia and it's really complicated and crazy but yes he he made this world to trap souls in and that with gnosis or knowledge you can escape this world if you don't you're going to get reincarnated back here and on one hand the the generous way of discussing Gnosticism is that they were trying to account for how could this world have evil in it? How could there be a creator God that allows evil in the world? And it's a major philosophical question. I think it's called the the problem of evil. And an all-knowing, all-loving God, yet there's evil in the world. How do we solve this problem? And they think the Gnostics were, were doing that they probably were responding to trauma, you know, from the Romans and the Babylonians and all that, these horrible massacres. Like, how could that be? How could life have that? And they make this convoluted system that eventually says, like, everything is evil and you've got to escape. But the only way to escape is with knowledge. And sometimes that knowledge meant living a very ascetic life and you removed yourself and you wore rough clothes and didn't have sex and didn't eat meat and that kind of thing. Or it could mean that you you invert reality in a fight against this demiurge. And so you you try to destroy, in a sense, life. And you certainly don't have children. And you certainly don't have sex with women because then you're going to make babies. And then there's going to be more babies. And it's just going to make more stuff for the demiurge. And... Each Gnostic sect had a twist on this basic, basic outline. And so it would progress and it would change and it never really died out when Constantine decided, you know, formalized Christianity in 325 and adopted Christianity as the state religion. For the first time, Romans started persecuting other religions up until that time in a kind of a Gnostic way they actually embraced all religions including including Judaism although Christianity was was persecuted by the Romans but that was kind of part of the the Gnostic thing but then they couldn't stop it and it spread and there were all kinds of Christian sects including Gnosticism and they formalized it and at that point the Gnostics started getting wiped out but they also just petered out because it's it's really kind of crazy compared to the message of Jesus and the church. Well, but except, Robert, I was going to yeah. ask you about this. Yeah. Um, that um, I can see it would appeal to gay intellectuals because it's yeah. because it's exclusive. It's the opposite of Christianity. You know, yeah, Christianity exactly. is you know the, the, even even the poor. In fact, especially the poor are yeah. welcome. 
right um and the rich not so much so so that wouldn't appeal to to the right <laughs> gay rich gay, gay intellectuals um uh and the, and there is an element of of kind of procreation and and celebration of the, so so that again wouldn't wouldn't appeal to to, to the gay inter- intellectuals um but at the same time if the cleverest people in the world if the cleverest man who ever lived was into gnosticism yeah uh, how do we know? He, how do we know he wasn't right? How do we know that there isn't a demiurge and, and that we're not living in hell and, and stuff? Have you got any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so many reasons. So one of Plato's Neoplatonists, a guy named Plotinus, who was a Platonist, and he didn't particularly like Christianity, hmm. but he wrote a whole treatise called Against the Gnostics where he, he mocked the Gnostics. It's like, how could, you know, your idea that the world is evil is, is, is crackpot. And how could the world be evil with babies and flowers? I, this is me now. I'm not, I'm not presenting Plotinus' argument. But he did use the, the beauty of the world is, is an argument against this idea that the world is, is 100% evil. But I would, again, say from these near-death experiences that there is evidence that this is a benevolent environment that we're here to learn, that our so- this is a, sc- a school for our souls. And again, the first near-death experience was the very end of the Republic, a 300-page book on what is justice? What is the ideal city? How can we make it happen? Politics, art, you know, uh, even food and how do we grow our food in the most just way? And of course, they can't decide what it is. And there's a lot of cockamamie ideas put forth and people think Plato was totalitarian. But they're really just exploring what justice is. And suddenly the book ends with this near-death experience where souls are leaving earth and going up to heaven or going down, I guess, to Tartarus. And souls are coming out of the above. They don't say heaven. They're coming out from the above and coming up from below and getting ready for their next life. And it's a great, great story. Look it up. The story of Ur, the myth of Ur, people. It's great. And everyone, and and they're suggesting, obviously, Plato, that there is no real justice in this world. And that justice takes place after you die fully. The full full justice takes place. Because in this story, the people that had led a bad life were coming up from below and complaining about, oh, that was rough. I just spent a thousand years, you know, in very difficult circumstances. And the people that had led a just life were coming down from above going, wow, that was so beautiful. And they're all hanging out together, choosing their next life which happens in a fairly complicated way, how they get to choose their life. But there's this whole idea that you chose, you partially responsible for choosing the life that you have here. And that you agreed to come here for one reason or another, I think, to grow your soul and to to learn. Like, this is a very difficult a plane of existence. There's no question about do, it. Do, but do the Gnostics not think that as well? I mean, do, that's what is, I wonder. That I just, not cons- what you're saying. Not- I just put a post on on Patreon. That's where my updates are now because the website's so hard and cumbersome. But how did the Gnostics miss that? 
Yeah, no, they don't think that. They think this world is wholly evil and you need to escape. But they do believe in reincarnation. But you see well, how close I mean, yeah. it is to Buddhism and Hinduism. Like a, like a pure Hindu will want to reject this world. But they don't think it's evil. You know, the Buddhist will... Ideal Buddhist is maybe in a cave meditating somewhere. They've rejected the world, but they don't say the world is evil. They just know, like we all sense, there's something grander and more beautiful just outside our reach, just outside our knowledge. But we feel it. We have intuition. Maybe we see it in dreams. Uh, that there's something more to life. And every human group throughout history has felt there's something more to life. I think the first atheists were the Epicureans of Greece. Always been very, very few atheists. But atheism is very close to Gnosticism in that it's a rejection of a benevolent creator. And then it all, but it all gets, of course, complicated because the Gnostics do believe in God. And that's why the Freemasons can say you have to believe in God to be a Freemason. It's just the God beyond God. But that God is so remote, we don't even bother praying to him. I'm very much feeling that the, that this podcast could go, go in a gazillion directions, and I feel oh, that yeah. we're we're scratching the surface of what it's, could be yeah. a, a, at least the twelve-hour conversation. <laughs> and I wish we had time for that because it is just amazing talking to you about this stuff. Oh, thank um, you. But I suppose we ought to um, talk specifically about Bacon and yeah. how his Gnosticism. Uh, how how he he um he incorporated that into okay. Ro- a- Rosicrucianism, by the way, it's it's yeah. it's not such a thing now. Do you, is is it no. is it worth mentioning briefly? I mean, what why no. why does Rosicrucianism matter? Well, it, it they became the Freemasons. It's very much incorporated into Freemasonry. Oh, okay. It, it was a grand hoax. It was another hoax, like Shakespeare. Okay, so, fine, fair enough. Anyway. So, so, so yeah, Rosicrucianism was 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 part of this this kind of fake fake hit tra- tradition uh to to buoy up this this kind of new religion that he he kind of invented in the form of freemasonry by the way yeah. i mean i know lots of freemasons yeah and you know they're kind of people who want to do good in in the world yeah. aren't they they want to go yeah. to their 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 meetings with their long stuff that they've got to learn and roll up their trouser legs and give funny handshakes and stuff. <laughs> I think most of these people are decent Absolutely. decent folk who just want to make the world a better place and, and get on get a leg up in their careers. But it globally it's more it's more sinister than that, isn't it? Well there's the upper echelon. So the the average Freemasonic lodge is kind of a feeder system. And they do say, we're here to make, make men better. And everyone yeah. is welcome. And we do charity. And Bacon talked a lot about charity. So it's hidden. Bill you know, Gates not- does charity, I've noticed, by the way. <laughs> he does lots of charity. Exactly. Lots exactly. and lots. <laughs> so does Melinda. <laughs> but that's how they pull you in. You know, all cults yeah. say they're going to do something for you. You're going to get something. You're going you're gonna to get something great. And so it's, it's, again, this is another big, complicated topic. And to pull out the Gnosticism is not so obvious, but it comes in a lot of quotes, and a lot of it has to do with light, and Bacon constantly talking about light 
and saying things that are wrong. He's a biblical scholar. Rumors are he did the final edit on the Bible. But he's constantly talking about the father of lights. God is the father of lights. Or confused matter. He, he starts talking about how the earth is, is confused matter. But the father of lights even says the, the God's first creation light. But in the Bible, the first creation is not light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then God said, let there be light. So it's actually the third creation, light. There was heaven and earth already. But he constantly says the father of lights, the first creation being light. Well, it turns out that's the first creation in the Zoroastrian religion, and which is Kabbalah, became Kabbalah, and this idea of light. And the Zoroastrian religion was very dualistic with good and evil. And this dualism eventually filtered down to there's no real difference between good and evil, and you need to combine them. And that's why the Templar flag had the white and the black. And you don't shy away from evil. You don't even judge evil. It's just another part of life. And again, all of this gets uh, into various levels of theology and philosophy that can't be quickly summarized. But the Gnosticism continued up into the... There's this group called the Assassins that influenced the Templars. And it's well known that the Templars were Gnostics who worshipped Baphomet. And also had this, you know, non-procreative stance, and they're supposed to... Anyway, the Templars are a whole other story, but they were set upon by the church, as you know, and a lot of them were burned at the stake, and they had to go deeply underground. And that's where we get the, all this intense secrecy of the Freemasonry and this kind of revenge on the church. Because at the time, you know, the Templars were fake Christians, but Gnostics always accepted Christianity as something, okay, that's for the common folk, not the Gnostics. We have special knowledge. And those are, you know, good, good for the Christians, but we have special Gnostic knowledge, and we get it by doing magic, and we get it by having orgies and doing all these weird things, and we're going to escape, and oh, those nice Christians. But once the church moved on the Templars and wiped them out, they went deeply underground, and I think this this vengeance started. Like, we are going to destroy Christianity, because look what Christianity did to us. And it's by now another foregone conclusion that the Templars morphed into the Freemasons. And that is a book called Born in Blood, and that's it's also rumored. It's been rumored for hundreds of years that the Templars became Freemasons. It's pretty much been established that that is true. And the Templars were Gnostics. So there the Gnostic is this hidden underground pool. And it's open to creative interpretation. You know, John Dee interpreted it one way, and Bacon interpreted it the other way. And I think his science was a form of Gnosticism. Like, scientism is a form of Gnosticism, and that you want to take over the planet. It became less about escaping the planet to taking over the planet in a kind of a war with God. We're going to discover the secrets of nature so that we can control them. We want the power of life and death. And so it's I this see. Pool, yeah, pool of Gnosticism via the Templars. 
that gets creative in, in many different ways, but it ultimately gets down to either no God or war against God or you know, maybe even strict atheism. There's a lot of ways I, to I get at. this, Robert, because, I mean, as a Christian, I understand that what, what is going on in the world right now as really the fulfillment of, 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 of biblical prophecy in that you've got the, 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 the fallen angels and the, the, forces of, the forces of evil yeah. are in opposition to God, our creator, yeah. and that they want to replace, they, they want to build, rebuild the Tower of Babel. They want to, sh- they want to, yeah. sh- to show themselves to be gods on earth in mockery yes. of the true creator and, and create a sort of simulacrum of God's, God's creation. So that's how I understand it. Yep. But I can see that if you were of a Gnostic persuasion, you would you'd be going, yeah, but it's okay. Because that, what you don't understand right. is that the God that we're fighting is not is not the lovely God that, that you know, who, who made us all. It's this nasty God, the Demiurge. So, we, you know, like we're doing the, doing the right thing. Is that, is, that, is that more or less what's happening? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they think they're the good guys, basically. Exactly. Right, they they have a rationale for inverting everything, turning everything upside down. A man is a woman. Um, well, so even know, even when they do things like is burning up the earth, you know, carbon dioxide is yeah, the most beneficial so, molecule around, but it's destroying the planet. It's an inversion. They invert things. And, Good and evil get inverted. Do, uh, do, Yes, I get this a lot. The, 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 there is so much inversion right now. Yes, it's um, inversion. But, but this, the things that they do, which are, you know, by, by their fruits, you shall know them. I mean, I can't, yeah. I can't find a rationale which, which would explain to me convincingly why it's a good thing to, um, to trade children for sex and adrenochrome and sort of breed them in underground chambers and 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 sacrifice them you know there's no way that you can persuade me well yeah but it's okay you've got to trust us we're doing it to have a go at the at this demiurge it just doesn't work does it i can't admit no it's not they're they're going to suffer greatly in the life review you know it's it's from what i gather from my extensive study of near-death experiences is that you go through a life review and what other pain whatever pain you cause someone else you're going to feel that pain you're actually going to get a, a, a vision somehow it's all recorded you know talk about the ultimate surveillance you know it's all recorded and you're going to feel the pain you caused in others and and some of these people are causing so much pain they're, they're going to be in hell like that's what hell is because they know they're not supposed to do it. You know, they're of their own free will causing this pain. But there will be subtle gradations, I believe, because some people have been brainwashed into doing these things. So as, as Chekhov said, it truly takes a god to judge success from failure and never make a mistake. That's why we can't really judge everyone. I think we can judge Bill Gates. No problem there. But you know, he's obviously father... a goodie because he's a philanthropist, Robert. <laughs> but his that father means he loves a... he <laughs> Phil loves and 
he loves mankind. It's 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 on the label that he wears, and he wears nice nice cozy sweaters. Have you noticed? <laughs> yes, he's got good. Uh, he's a good guy. Good good PR. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I, this the thing with this um, project is it leads into so much complicated philosophy and speculation, and there's just so much stuff there. But I'm I'm getting at it. I'm chipping away at it, and I'm I'm making a limit. Like I'm, I can only talk about so much. Like we're doing here in this podcast. Like going to draw the line. I know it's just crazy. And finish the book, but can it's I fun. Ask you briefly, it's exciting. What's what's your? Uh, you're not a Christian, or are you? I was raised as a Christian, and I consider myself a Christian. But I there's things about Christianity that that bother me that. Uh, I think they put some words in Jesus' mouth, like, uh, there's no way to the Father except by me. I don't think Jesus would have said that. I, uh, and that's one of my main criticisms of Christianity, this absolute refusal to entertain other ways of being virtuous or getting to God. Uh, what are some others? Oh, I believe in reincarnation. So yeah, just going back, that no one comes yeah. to the Father except through me. That's only yeah. in John, I think, isn't it? Is that right? I think so. I'm not sure. But that becomes a sticking point with a lot of Christians. But yeah, I, I think I'm Christian. I like Taoism with this kind of uh, sense of being a part of this grander design, a small part, but, you know, attune yourself and with that, I love the Iroquois, which is the uh, the Native Americans from uh, Eastern Seaboard, who had an extraordinarily advanced form of government, which was copied by Washington and uh, Ben Franklin into these separate states. It's like the republics within a republic idea was invented by the Iroquois Indians. And they had a very exalted spirituality that was, of course, nature-based, but it sure wasn't Gnostic. You know, it was like, wow, look at this earth. Look at the beauty. Thank you. They would do these Thanksgiving we get here in America from the Indians where they, they would start every meeting with like 20 minutes of thank you. Thank you, creator, for the birds. Thank you for the four, you know, just thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank for the wind. Thank. And I, I love that. I love nature. And I think Christianity can get a little separated from nature, but it doesn't exclude I, nature and certainly doesn't say nature's evil. I I feel that I I've steered you off topic only because because but where I, I'm I, I'm, I love I wanted, this, this, too. Yeah, sorry. That's the problem with yeah, this work. Yeah, what's not <laughs> what's not to like about martyrdom? <laughs> so um you, you you mentioned Benjamin Franklin, who was yeah. of course a Satanist in the thirty third degree. Yeah. Freemason, um, but but and you reckon that all this stuff, all this this dark stuff, can be traced back? It, well, it, it, at least in its modern incarnation, to Francis Bacon. I think it came through through Bacon. Yeah, I do. I think he certainly because he made the Freemasons, which consolidated this occultism and the science. But of course, he's, he's obviously not alone, but again, with the Shakespeare, he created this intense patriotism amongst the English. And so when you think about the English, you think of Shakespeare, 
it's impossible not to think of Shakespeare, and Elizabeth Winkle even says that in her book, uh, you cannot separate the British Empire from Shakespeare. And I think he meant to do that. And I think it created this, this force for empire, which is what he wanted. He wanted empire. He wanted control. And we get the Great Reset, which Bacon's entire project was called the Great Instauration. So the Great Reset sounds really similar to the Great Instauration, which means the great new beginning. We're going to wipe. We're going to change everything, how things are run around here. And that's what he wanted to do. And he, uh, I think it's happening with this Great Reset. It's kind of like the last movement of the empire. And a lot of people think the Great Reset began in England with, uh, you know, Charles first announced it. I think the, those words were first announced by King Charles. And again, I'm not putting down the common Charles English II, person. You mean, what, you mean the, the, the Charles current III. king? Charles III. Charles, sorry, Charles III. That's what Charles I mean. Charles III. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm getting so, confused as well. Yeah, yeah. Charles III mentioned Great Reset first. Uh, there's very, you know, Prince Philip was on the board of the World uh, Economic Forum. It's empire. It's the final stages of empire and, and surveilling the whole planet at once from a central global government. And it's happening now. And that's this this kind of end time scenario. Like we are, I think we're in danger of this project reaching fruition. I don't think they will win. I think because they're mad, it will fall apart. But it may get chaotic as it falls apart. But they're completely mad. They can't have power of life. We don't know where life came from. We don't know where a single thought comes from. You know, we have souls and they can't create life and they can't, they, they're going to fail because they're mad. But we have to be strong and we have to do things like you're doing. You know, thank you so much uh, for your work. And we will manage to uh, change things around and create a, create a more uh, equitable society than what they want. I don't think we can create heaven on earth. I think that's the problem. And that all these movements, communism, fascism, scientism, are, are forms of Gnosticism has been identified by some scholars like Eric Vogelin. They're all aspects of Gnosticism trying to create heaven on earth when really we'll just try to love your neighbor. You know, give that a go. See how well you do. And if you can do that, you know, move on to the next step. But that's that's your task here. And that's that's <laughs> that's very hard well, to I, do. I'm I'm with you on this. I, I'm with you on this. By the way, can I just ask you a question? You, sure. The, Elizabeth Elizabeth the first era it was illegal not to go to church right and and you could be burned at the stake burned at the stake for having the wrong thoughts about about Christianity so everyone was supposedly supposedly a Christian yeah yeah so so how was it that the leading courtiers like Bacon um, and John Dee were able to do this stuff that really ought to have got them burned at the stake and and and, and how much are you suggesting that Elizabeth was in on this? I mean, do, do you think that, that, that she, she too was a, a Gnostic or a, an occultist? I do, um, because you could be a Gnostic and still be a Christian. They had no problems with that. It's not a linear, logical system. You, you can do both at the same time. Not a problem. That, you know, that's shocking to us, but they had no problems with that. 
And they needed the mainstream Christianity to keep control of the people. I mean, that's the number one thing, is keep control of the masses. We have to keep our exalted position, it, which goes all the way back to Egypt, where the leaders were worshipped as gods. Even in the Roman times, you know, the, when, the, when the emperor died, he was turned into a god. And this whole idea that your god has to be kept in front of the people. And one way is to, you know, say you worship a good God and pretend to be virtuous, because we are at heart virtuous. We are at heart want fair play, and we do love much more. You know, the world is overwhelmingly good. So they pretend to be good. It's, it's important to pretend to be good. And that's something that, you know, goes back to the Templars and and it's been a theme recently, like this the show, an outward show of religious faith, which is part of the Assassins, Templars, the Sabbatean Jews were pretended to be Jewish, but they weren't. You know, the people pretend very well, and it gets them it gets them places in life because we're trusting, as we should be trusting, but we have to be discern we have to use discernment and critical thinking at the same time. So yeah, they gain a lot by pretending. There also was briefly an opening, like they allowed magicians like Cornelius Agrippa to thrive, and, and Dee took, took some heat for what he was doing, and eventually they say he was turned on by James. But it all gets very complicated. It's not, it's not real linear, logical thing that we're looking at. It's kind of this pool but the ultimate goal is power and there and and this war war on the creator to become the creator it's it's you know it's 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 the same old story right it's uh, it's lucifer the pride of lucifer in the fall this is continually reenacting well, being reenacted well yeah i mean i i'm sure that people listening to this podcast are going to be turning to your longer versions because i mean you you've done what how many podcasts 11 11 and they're each about an hour long aren't they so it's um some got too long i was putting too much and some of the early ones especially i'm sorry uh number four on uh on macbeth when i bring out the gnosticism in macbeth because what i'm discovering is the gnosticism in the shakespeare plays i think it's really clear in macbeth so that's episode four and five but I think they're both like two hours long, but stick with it. I do these long introductions where I talk about Bacon and Tudor era, but then I get to the play and listen to the the, the Gnosticism in Macbeth. That's episode four and five. I think I think I make a very strong case, and I don't think it's been seen before in Shakespeare scholarship. So I'm going to go way out on the crazy limb and say I think I've extended Shakespeare scholarship. <laughs> Which is a nutty thing to uh, say, I'm, but I, I'm, I just said it. I'm sure you have. Um, <laughs> just, but just um, as, a, as an appetite wetter. On so, why, why was? Yeah, I think you've described Freemasonry as the world's most successful secret society. Yeah. Uh, uh, why? Why is that so? And how great did question. how did Bacon make it so? Great, great question. Bacon wrote about and deeply understood the power of theater on the human mind. And he said, it's the bow to the fiddle of the human mind, theater. And he created the third degree. So the Templars had two degrees of initiation, which involved this secrecy 
like we're going to cut your throat and pull your bowels out and throw you on the beach if you disclose anything that happened here to a non-Mason. They say it twice and they, you know, sort of act it out. But the third degree is a is this is this participatory theater degree involving a mythic character named Hiram Abiff, who is mentioned in the Bible once, sort of Hiram, King Hiram of Tyre sends Hiram uh, the craftsman to help Solomon build the temple, Solomon's temple. And from there, Bacon created a ritual, theatrical ritual, where the the initiate becomes Hiram Abiff, and he's ritually killed and resurrected. So all the mystery religion, death and resurrection, which is central to Christianity, death and resurrection, actually happens to you. So it's kind of, which is what happened, as we mentioned, at the Eleusinian Mysteries. So it's a, it's a lighter version of the sacred mysteries. And this person dies as Hiram Abiff. He's killed, he's ritually murdered. And then resurrected, and that's why the Masons say, uh, "I rose." What day they call it? I was risen, or I rose. It's to become a Mason. Your third degree of initiation. You, you were. Uh, what's the word? Shoot, I'm forgetting. Risen up, or you rose up to become a Mason, and it's apparently very powerful because the entire time you're you're blindfolded. And then I think when you take your blindfold off, like everyone's got a, a, a sword at your throat or something. But there's that whole process of fear, fear, and then relief from fear. And then you're in. Then you're in a fraternity. You have Lodge brothers that are sworn to do anything they can to help you at any time, at any moment's notice. Unless their life is in danger, they are sworn to come help you. And as you said, you know, it's really great for doing business. It's really great for friendship. It's really great for this idea of belonging. You know, you're a part of something. You have friends. And that's really, really big psychologically. And Bacon knew that. Bacon was hundreds of years ahead, Freud and Jung and any kind of psychology. Bacon knew it. He knew it from reading the Greeks and the Romans and, and, and so much art. He, he knew all this stuff. And he was a master at hypnotism. He knew hypnotism well, even though it hadn't been named, just like gravity hadn't been named yet, but people knew knew how to work with it. And this bond develops that's been very good. Very few people have broken that bond. There have been some. And basically all the secrets of Freemasonry are available. And it's it's dying out in popularity, but back in the day. You could go to Indonesia and find a Freemasonic lodge and get a place to stay. You know, you could go to France, Germany, Spain, Italy, and you get a lodge and stay there. And it was this huge boon to travel as well. And it's still good for business. So he was he brilliantly created uh, a religion that people are very loyal to. And of course, it, it really wants the best and the brightest. So it doesn't have this burden of the sick and the poor and the maimed and the, yes. and the blind. They can't get in. They say it's for everyone, but they can't get in. They're excluded. 
Yeah. And so it's it, it's kind of a win-win, but also this kind of decentralized power structure in Freemasonry. There's really not a charismatic leader. So he was also brilliant. Somehow it's it's self-created itself going forward. And there have been wars within Freemasonry. There's no question. I mean, eventually, you know, the Freemasons went to war with each other, but somehow they've been able to patch it all up. You know, like um, Charles lost his head. That wasn't the Freemasons. But later on, the Stuarts and the William and Mary, right? It was James uh, Charles III that lost the crown to William and Mary. Those were two Freemasonic branches kind of went at war with each other. So it's not this monolith, and that's what we have to remember about the elite, the predator class. They are not a monolith. They fight amongst themselves. And I think that's going yeah. on now. I think they are like they are they are like sort of rival mafia gangs, aren't they? They yeah. sort of they, they meet occasionally. The families all meet and they sort of they uh sort out their differences and they and they allocate territory and and stuff like yeah. that but yeah. they're all in the business of crime i think that's the what they have in common power yeah power and control that's what they want and they're not going to get it what, was this by the way was was what was your rabbit hole moment what was it that that sort of made you question the nature of the of the world wow that's a good question um, I think I would, you know, questioning, wondering, thinking, and it would pop in my head, maybe there's a secret government. And it, instantly the voice in my head would go, no, that's ludicrous. How no. could there be a secret government? Can't be true. But I, I met this guy, uh, and we were both kind of standing on the edge of uh the whole the giant rabbit hole edge of a cliff and we kind of pushed each other off his thing was the moon landing he immediately he, this guy's not like me he'll eventually he'll just launch into these things and he he launched into the moon landing conspiracy when we first met and i thought wow what a nutter what a nut yeah. and and i think looking into that there's this writer named dave mcgowan who writes yeah, yeah. brilliantly on the on the moon landing, and then a couple things I think uh, from Freedom to Fascism by Aaron Russo. Yeah, and it just became obvious, you know, JFK, of course, is the big one here in the states. When you you yeah. look into JFK, it's like, come on, and they got away with it. They killed him and got away. Yeah, with it. there's obviously although, a secret government. Although when you go down the rabbit hole of of yeah, was it all theater? Well, oh, well, gosh. Really so that's the problem, right? That's the problem with what we're doing is that it gets crazy on top of crazy. And people, I think people say crazy things. And then we're arguing, you know, like, I'm sorry. I hope I'm not in, in, insulting anyone saying flat earth. But, you know, it goes there. Oh, you are. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I think this is why we need to keep an open mind. I mean, look, yeah. I, 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 I think you make a powerful case for Bacon being Shakespeare. I love Alexander and I, I find his case enormously persuasive. I'm not going to kind of play God here and, and, and <laughs> decide <laughs> what, what the truth is. I, 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 I'm, and I'm, I'm even, 
I certainly wouldn't give flat earthers a hard time. I mean, I there's there's so much that we don't know. It seems to me. I yeah. I'm, I'm up for any any possibility. Well, I'm up for any possibility, but there's that great saying, you know, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. And I think we can make a case that, you know, flat earth isn't true, but, you know, we can't get into that here. But I will say that I think DeVere and Bacon were working on it together. They were, they were related. They lived a few blocks from each other. They both had all the wealth and power in the world. They both loved theater. I think they had a grand old time writing these plays. And that was, that was part of why that, it was that, so that, successful. That sounds worryingly Hegelian. You, you, you found the synthesis. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Please, no, no. I'm see. glad, I'm, I'm okay. glad there that we've, we've, we've had a, a happy ending. Ha- happy finish, as they say in massage parlors. Uh, James, I really appreciate <laughs> um, the chance to so, talk to you. Oh, it's been great, Robert. I've really enjoyed it. Um, tell people the easiest way to find your stuff. Well, the podcast apps are great. Uh, I don't know, whatever you use, put in The Hidden Life is Best, uh, Francis Bacon, The Gnostic English Empire. My website is thehiddenlifeisbest.com. And if you want to support the book project, I'm asking for patrons at uh, patreon, patreon.com slash hiddenlifeisbest. And that's where I do updates for for patrons and the the podcast take an enormous amount of time. I had number 12 ready to go, but I didn't think it was up to snuff. So I'm redoing that. I have stuff coming out on Julius Caesar and 12th night. And, um, some of these books I've been reading cause there's just so much to read at a certain point. I'm going to draw the line, but the book is going well, but yeah, the hidden life is best.com, uh, podcast, the hidden life is best and Patreon dot com slash the hidden life is best well can i just add my personal recommendation um i urge people to go and listen to robert's podcast to your podcast they're really really good and you're very entertaining i wanted to mention one tiny thing to you and i hope you'll take it take this in the, in the right way oh, sure i wanted to correct a couple of your pronunciations oh please I know do that you like getting things right Please do. Okay, so it's it's North it's it's Northumberland, not Northumberland. Oh, n- North Humber. N- n- Northumberland, yeah. Oh, okay. um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, Stratford on Avon, uh, Americans find it very very hard to to pronounce words like Ascot and 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 Avon. Yes. Um, it is tr- try and say it's Avon. It's it's almost as if the O isn't there. It's Avon. Stratford on Avon. Avon, yeah, Stratford that's on Avon, not, and I sometimes and say another one. Avon. I think you some. <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing. I said Avon. Um, I always wondered. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story, Robert. Uh, uh-huh. So, so that, that to, to to show that I'm not trying to kind of school you or anything. When I was um, when I was, this is one of my childhood memories. I was I was a very precocious reader. And I would often devour books without always understanding what the words were or, or, or whatever. And I remember my, my, my father had a friend round and, and he wanted to show, he wanted to show, oh, thank you. My son's just brought me a cup of tea. He wanted to show off his clever son. And so I would read out this, I read out this, this bit from a book. And then I got to this word, E-T-C dot. And I put, I didn't, I'd never, I didn't know what it was. So I, I said, etic. And they both, 
laughed at me affectionately in the way that grown-ups do when they listen to a sort of small child pronouncing etc etic and it haunted me for for not just days or months but years afterwards because you it, it's always embarrassing when you've been pronouncing this word wrong and you get get found out so i'm i'm saying this in the in the nicest friendliest way there's oh, one I, other word um because yeah. i wanted to talk to you about this actually I was, I was thinking about this when i was walking the dog this morning i was thinking what am i going to talk to Rob, robert about and i was thinking how I, I think this fits in with your thesis about about the sort of the power structure of, of England and how England rules the world. There are all sorts of words in English which have kind of specialist pronunciations which are not obvious from looking at the word. Yeah. And it's particularly um, the case among upper class names like Cholmondeley, which is which, which is pronounced Chumley, and Featherston Hall, which is often pronounced Fanshawe, except when it's not, except uh -huh. when the families decided that they want it to be pronounced Featherston Hall. Uh -huh. And there's there's Magdalen Oxford and Magdalen Cambridge, which is spelt Magdalen. Um, uh -huh. it, it goes on and on. Um, I used to live, or my, rather my mother used to live in a village called Topsham in Devon, which the locals pronounced Topsham. But if you, if you were kind of you know a sort of income or whatever and you pronounce it topsum you look like a fool in the in, in the same way that somebody has been to new orleans and discovered that it's pronounced new orleans sounds but <laughs> no i knew there were words i was proud of myself for getting things like lester right that's tough for americans that is very uh, tough you know well Roth, done on that rothsley yeah. i still don't yeah it's, no i really appreciate you telling me that oh rothsley yeah i mean how rothsley. do you pronounce that that's the earl of southampton isn't it the dedicatee yeah. of one of the sonnets that yeah I don't even because that, <laughs> that word pretty much doesn't exist in English now. Roth, Rothsley or Rothsley, um, that's a tough one. Oh, there's one other. There's one other trap I noticed. Please. Um, the word, the, the surname Cook, C C O K E, yeah. looks like it's pronounced Coke, but is often pronounced Cook. Okay. Cook. Yeah. Are you wise to that one? It's 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 really it's really tricky. It's that's really tricky. Because I know Ann Bacon, yeah, yeah. Ann Cook Bacon is two O's, so that's Cook, I hope. Oh, that's easy. They, they've given you the clue there, yeah. But, but for example, the um, uh, the Cooks of, uh, what would they be? Um, Hokum, Hokum in, in Norfolk. Cooks are the Earls of um, Leicester, one. maybe? I don't know. Leicester's, yeah, um, Norfolk's yeah, yeah, one. That's North the other complicated Oak. thing, that you're often an earl. When, when your family oh. seat is in Norfolk, say, you're, you're not the earl of, earl of Norfolk or the Duke of Norfolk. The Duke of, the Duke of Norfolk, I think, is in Arundel, which is in Sussex. <laughs> it gets really complicated. I know. I, I have no it's, idea what's going on there. I'm looking for a hmm. book on that, like how to figure all that out. Um. I've so enjoyed talking to you, and 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 there's there's loads of room for another other podcast. Um, let me remind people that I, this is my this is my living. I really do depend on on your goodwill and your generosity for, for for to support. I'm not making this up. I've cast myself out of the mainstream. I cannot earn a living out of mainstream journalism. They wouldn't even if I wanted to engage with these scumbags. They wouldn't they wouldn't have me, and I, I and they wouldn't pay me. So that's over. So podcast is what, uh, what i do for a living so please please if you can um support me um i mean i make this stuff my, my stuff available for free if you if you don't want to or you can't afford it but if you can 
show your appreciation. You can buy me a coffee. Lots of people do that. You can support me on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Locals, and on Substack, and probably other ways. Oh yeah, there's this there's, there's, there's PayPal as well. I think I, I I still do. There's a way of finding me there. Uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting to do my Bitcoin address, but I do quite like cryptos. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and thank you again, Robert Frederick, for for. Uh, showing me that the hidden life really is best if you're if you're kind of evil and and clever and um all the things that francis bacon was well thanks a million james i really enjoyed it uh no it's great and i hope to meet you one day i i I don't think i'm ever going to go to america again you know i think america is so so over yeah not that not that my country isn't over but yeah I i don't feel that sense of wanting to go to New York, New York anymore. You know, you know what I mean? I agree. I totally agree. (gasps) Sad. And it's all Francis Bacon's fault. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I'm glad we figured it out. Welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but it's even better than that. This is a promo for the event you've all been waiting for. You wanted me to do a live event in the North. I'm going to be doing a live event in the North, in Manchester. You've been angling for ages to get me to do a podcast with one particular person. I've held off till now, but finally the moment has come. Dellingpole meets Ike. Yup. I am going to do a live podcast event with the guy you could almost call the god... Well, certainly the living godfather of all the conspiracy theorists. I mean, most of them have been bumped off, of course, but not David. And I hope he he stays around till this live event. Um, Same applies to me, actually. It's going to be in Manchester, as I said, and it's on November the 15th. I'm really looking forward to seeing you all there. You can get your tickets, book them while they're still available. You can get them on Eventbrite. You'll find the details below this little advertlet. Anyway, see you there. It's going to be fun. Bye. Bye.